Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 9, verses 12 to 21. So turn to Romans 9 in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 12 on page 891. 891 Romans 12. We're going to look at how the gospel affects our relationships with with others. How God is calling us in light of the gospel to relate with and interact uh, with others, specifically with our neighbors, friends, family, loved ones, people that we're close with. We love them. They love us. That's Romans 12, 9 to 13. Uh, And also with our enemies, uh, people who don't like us, people who persecute us, people who want to do evil uh, to us. That's Romans 12, 14 to to 21. So we're going to look at both of those categories. Spoiler alert, uh, it's the same thing for both of them. God wants us to love our neighbor. God wants us to love our uh, enemies. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through it this morning. This text is it's interesting, though. It's kind of like, um, it's very similar to 1 Corinthians 13. If you're familiar with that text, if you've been to a wedding and heard that read before, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, or but all the things that love is. Uh, the, the Romans 12, 9 through 21 is similar. It kind of is Paul uh, giving these exhortations, these commands that effectively describe uh, what love is and what it looks like to love your neighbor and to love your your enemy. So we're going to walk through those respective characteristics of love of neighbor, love of enemy. There's, we're going to look at, look at nine characteristics um, of, of what it looks like to love your neighbor and four uh, more characteristics as it pertains to loving your enemy. So our sermon has 13 points this morning. We normally have two, maybe three. We have 13 this morning. So, you know, by my calculation, we should be out of here by 3 p.m., something like that. Um, no, let's read through Romans 12, 9 to 21, and we'll, we'll take a few minutes and just con- consider what Paul uh, is calling us to, what God is calling us to, and um, what godly love of your neighbors and your enemies looks like. It reads, uh, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, uh, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but rather leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he is thirsty, then give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, 
We thank you for the privilege of um, gathering together, opening your word together, studying, considering, meditating on the implications of and the application of your word together. And we just ask for your grace that you would speak to us in these next few minutes and that you would um, meet us here. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so nine characteristics that we're going to walk, that we're going to look at, walk through with respect to love, loving your neighbor from these first uh, four verses. The first is uh, godly love is genuine. Let your love be, uh, be genuine. So uh, tr- to, to truly love someone in light of how God has loved you and saved you, to truly love someone, your love for them has to be real, sincere, genuine, it has, to, it has to be rooted in what you really think and what you really feel about that person. We have a word for uh, saying things uh, or, or doing things that appear to be loving when you don't really mean them, you don't really feel them. That word is called flattery. If you give someone excessive praise and you go on and on but you don't really mean it and your real motive is not to communicate things that you actually think but your real motive is to further your own interests with that person that's called flattery if you're a boss or a person in position of authority you're constantly having to discern whether the people around you are being genuine or whether they are uh, flattering you you know they said yes but maybe they are just a yes man maybe they say yes all the time they laugh at my jokes maybe i'm not really that funny Right, like you know, you're constantly wondering, am I, am I, the, the, am I experiencing flattery here? Psalm five, verse nine says, the person who flatters others with their speech, they cannot be trusted. Their heart is full of destruction and malice, and their throat is an open grave. So don't flatter people with fake love, but rather love them with real, genuine love. Think carefully about the, the loving things that you say and make sure that you really mean them and don't just say them uh, when you don't mean them to, to make someone feel, feel better. Now, it's worth, you know, I mean, this word genuine, it's worth kind of stopping and considering because uh, we live in a culture that celebrates the idea of being genuine, celebrates the idea of authenticity. It's the most important thing you can be, the most important thing you can do. Be true to yourself, be honest about who you are, what you are, what you feel, do what you think is right, do what you feel is right. These are the mantras of our culture today. Much of it, according to Scripture, is the mark of a fool, the mark of an idiot. I mean, to, to use the word frankly, Proverbs twelve fifteen says, the fool does what is right in his own eyes, the wise person listens to the advice of others. So it's not, the Bible doesn't exhort us to live your truth and do what you think is right and, and sincerity and, and, you know, authenticity above all else. The Bible uh, exhorts us to recognize that what you think is right may actually be wrong and listen to other people who are smarter and wiser than you. Someone says, I don't, I don't flatter people. I'm always genuine. I just tell it like it is. I just say what's on my mind. I speak my truth. According to Scripture, that's the mark of a fool or an idiot. 
Proverbs 29 says, There is more hope for a fool than there is for someone who speaks rashly and hastily and who just says what's on their mind without thinking. So the Bible doesn't exhort us to just say what's on your mind. The Bible exhorts us to be careful with your words. Uh, don't just say everything you want to say, but use self-control as a filter to only say things that are good and wise and that build up other people regardless of how you feel. So there's these two commands that are intention, right? Let your love be genuine, meaning don't just say things that are flattering, even if you don't feel them for the sake of making someone else feel good or kind of advancing your own interests. But also, on the other hand, don't just say everything that you think the second that you think it with no filter, without regard to how it's going to affect other people. Don't do either one of those, right? Have self-control, have a filter, but also be genuine and say what you really mean. You've got to do both of them to be a faithful Christian. And so you have to discern with the help of the Holy Spirit, convicting your heart, you know, what's what, when is what, when is the time for what, right? Sometimes speaking up too loudly, too quickly, too forcefully, too combatively is a violation of God's command to be gentle and have self-control. And some of us need to repent of that. Sometimes not speaking at all or speaking too quietly or too passively or not boldly enough or saying something in flattery that's, that's not what we really feel is a violation of God's command to be genuine. And some of us need to repent of that. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit to determine how to obey both of those commands at any given moment. But characteristic number one, to love others with a godly love, your love must be sincere. Number two, uh, godly love is good. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So God, real, true, godly, gospel-centered love of someone else is not, it, it's, it's, a, it's good. It's morally good. It's, it's true and right and righteous. And it stands opposed to that which is wrong and bad and evil and, and sinful. So the idea is, God calls us to love your, your neighbor, but if your, quote, love, you know, takes the form of affirming or encouraging behavior that is sinful or ungodly or morally wrong, then that's just not love, and it's not loving. Because love abhors what is evil, and it loves and holds fast to and, and encourages and exhorts that which is, is good. And so depending on your circumstance and the people that you're surrounded with, it's going to take any number of, of forms. It's going to, the application for this is, is you know, all over, all over the map. But yeah, if you're, you know, know someone who's, you know, someone who wants you to affirm their behavior, right? Maybe they're someone who's in a same-sex relationship. They're, they're going to get married and they want you to be a part of their wedding, uh, you know, or if you know, a, if you know a person who is married and they're intending to divorce their spouse, but they don't have biblical grounds to do so. They've just fallen out of love and they want to go marry someone else and they are looking to you to affirm their decision. There's someone who's in a strained relationship with a friend, bitterness, tension, uh, because of, you know, maybe they've sinned against this person and they won't repent, or maybe they've been sinned against by this person and they won't forgive. And again, they confide in you. They're looking for comfort and, and affirmation. There's any number of situations 
where the way forward that may feel the most loving and the way forward that the world is going to celebrate and declare to be the most loving actually amounts to encouraging and affirming and promoting behavior that is sinful. And so therefore what feels like love, what the world declares is love, is actually uh, promoting evil and ignoring what is good. And Paul says that's not real love. Real love abhors what is evil and holds fast to, to what is good. So by all means, love your neighbor. I encourage them, comfort them, affirm them when you can, but don't affirm that which is evil uh, because that's not uh, actually loving. So godly love is genuine. Godly love is good. Those are our first two. Our third is uh, godly love is rooted in uh, brotherly affection. Right? God is calling us to love others with the same kind of love, the same like strength and like grit and and determination of love that that you would see uh, in a familial bond between family members, which is an observable phenomenon in nature, both in in humanity and, and, you know, non-humans. You see this, like, strong bond. Again, with humans, it could be just practical, right? Friends come and go, right? I, I, the people I spend time with most right now are not the same people I spent the most time with 20 years ago in terms of my friends, but your family is always your family, right? Your, your brother, your sister when you're seven is the same as your brother or sister when you're 87. So there's maybe just a practical uh, matter of, of kind of that familial bond. Biologists will tell you that it's deeper, that it's rooted in genetic, it's rooted in DNA, right? Uh, any, uh, any of us who are not biologically related in this room, we share common DNA like a microscopic, infinitely you know, small one millionth of one millionth of one millionth of one percent, right, or something, right, is, is what is the DNA that we share in common. But you, with you and your parents or you and your siblings, 50% of your DNA, more or less, on average, is going to be, is going to be in, in common. And so your genetics, your, your biological impulse is to look out, first, firstly for yourself, right, to not die, that's your body. Your body is, wants instinctively to, do, to protect itself. But, but like a close second would be your family, your, your siblings, your, your parents. You want to look out for them. You want to care for them. That's kind of baked into to who we are. We're fiercely loyal to our family. And Paul says that kind of fierce loyalty to family should also mark your relationships with other believers. One theologian says, The word brotherly affection denotes a warm familial love. Paul conceives of the church as a family that's even closer than one's own biological family. For we are all united to Christ as brothers and sisters. 1 Timothy 5, right? says to treat older men in the church like you would treat your own father. Treat older women in the church like you would treat your own mother. Treat younger men in the church like you would treat a brother, younger women like you would treat a sister. He says, as Christians, the people of God, uh, warm affection should course through us and course among us uh, as the members of the, the body. So, one, godly love is genuine. Two, godly love is good. Three, godly love is marked by brotherly affection. Four, godly love 
honors, honors others. It's honorable. Right? Outdo one another with showing honor. Reverence. High respect. Great esteem. When you stand before a judge, you address them as your honor. And when he talks, you be quiet and listen. And whatever he says is uh, what, what happens. Uh, in golf, whoever has honors on a given hole, they get to go first. They get to tee off first. Everyone else gets out of the way, defers to them, gives them special treatment. If someone says something bad about your spouse, if a, if a husband, you know, if someone says something bad about their, his wife, takes advantage of her, he stands up for her, protects her, and advocates her, we say, oh, good, he's defending her honor. So reverence, respect, esteem, treating someone with dignity and care and worth and value is what it means to honor someone. And Paul says, that's what I want you to do with your, with your neighbor, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, with those around you. Love them uh, and, and honor them. And not just honor them, but to outdo one another in showing honor. So when you uh, look at uh, followers of Christ interacting together, it should look like they are literally almost uh, competing. Competing to see who can love the other one more, who can esteem the other one more highly, who can defer to the other one more, who can ensure that the other person gets their way instead of me getting my way. When there's conflict, who can be the first one to repent, who can be the first one to forgive. Godly love involves honoring others and, and actively trying to honor others as, as best as we can. So love is genuine, it is good, it is rooted in brotherly affection, it is, uh, it's to honor others. Next, godly love is uh, zealous. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. So the idea is that love, not, I'm not, I was never, never great with, in English, but love is a verb. It's a transitive verb that has a direct object, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an action. It's a thing that you do. If you listen to the, the wisdom of the world, you might, be, uh, you might be told that love is an emotion. It's a thing that you feel. It's butterflies in your stomach. It's, it's an emotion that you passively experience that washes over you and you are, you are the passive recipient of it with no agency at all. Our marriage fell apart because we fell out of love, right? As if that's just a thing that happened to us. But love, when understood rightly, is an action. It's a thing that you do. It's a commitment that you make. Even as our feelings and emotions change, we are committed to love one another no matter what for our whole life. Love is an action. It requires effort. It requires energy. It requires intention and discipline and, and diligence and zeal. Which are words that you would hear, right? Those words are words that you would hear when you're talking about training for a marathon. Discipline, diligence, right? Uh, you know, zeal fervor, energy. If you're training for a marathon and you, just, um, and you just decide, I'm not going to train on any given day unless I want to, unless I feel like it, right? Training is just an emotion that I may or may not feel on any given day, and I have to be true to myself, so if I don't feel like running, I'm just not going to run. Well, there's like a calendar, right? Like to, to run 26 miles on this day, you've got to run 22 on this day. 
which means you've got to run 18 on this day and 15, and, right? Like, and so if you, don't, if you don't do it, you're not going to be on track to, to train for your marathon. You'll, you'll fail in your efforts to run that marathon. And Paul says, loving other people is like that. It requires zeal and fervency to serve the Lord and love others in that same kind of, of way. It's a, it's a grind. It's a discipline. You have, when, when you don't want to train for your marathon, you have to push through your lack of desire and do it anyway so that you don't fail. And when you don't feel like loving someone, you have to push through that um, indifference or that uh, unwillingness, you have to push through it and love them anyway with the same sort of energy and zeal that you would uh, in, in training for an athletic event so that you can, you know, fight against and overcome your own selfishness and be able to love people as God has called us to. So godly love is genuine, it's good, it's marked by brotherly affection, it honors others, it is zealous. Number six, godly love is hopeful. Rejoice in hope. Meaning that you uh, maintain, at you, at you, as a discipline, you cultivate and maintain a positive expectation of what is going to happen. You're hoping for the best, you're expecting the best, you're optimistic that the best thing is going to happen instead of pessimistically expecting the, the worst. Try to think about this week what an example of, of what hope and hopefulness looks like. Does anyone remember the 2004 American League Championship in baseball? Uh, the, the Red, this was the Red Sox. This is the year that the Red Sox won the World Series. Now, prior to 2004, this is, I mean, this is, the, I think, the best sports thing that's ever happened in all, in all time, all of history. But prior to the, the Yankees and the Red Sox had a bitter rivalry, right? Our, the, the biggest rivalry in sports, and the Yankees just dominated them, just punked them all the time. Since uh, 1918, 84 years, the Red Sox had never won the World Series. 84 years. It's the longest drought of any team in professional sports, more, more or less, at that, at that time. During that span of 84 years, when the Red Sox had won zero World Series, the Yankees had won 26 World Series championships, more than any other team in professional sports at this time. It was literally David and Goliath, right? The, the winning team and the, the losing team. Bitter rivalry. Yankees had always dominated it. The two teams met in the American League Championship Series, and everyone thought the Yankees were going to win because they had always won. Now, seven-game series, first team to win four games. The Yankees come out and win the first three, one, two, three. They're da- the Red Sox are down three nothing in the series. Now, no team has ever, in any sport, in any seven-game series ever, come back from a 3 nothing deficit to win a seven-game series. So now everyone's like, man, not only do we think the Red Sox are going to lose because they're the Red Sox and they're the Yankees, now we really think they're going to lose because they're down 3-0 and no one has ever done that. And then the Yankees pull ahead. They're, they go into the bottom of the ninth with a one-run lead, and they bring in their closing pitcher, the best pitcher, closer to ever play the game, Mariano Rivera, and everyone's like, it's for sure over. No one can ever, this guy doesn't blow saves. There's no way that they are going to not go three up, three down, lose the game, be done for the, for the year. And miraculously, the, the Red Sox score a run, force extra innings. In the 12th inning, their best hitter uh, 
smashes a walk-off home run. They win the game. But even then, everyone's still thinking, all right, it's just 3-1. No one, there's no way they're going to win three more. They do. They win the next three games in a row. Bam, bam, bam. They beat the Yankees, come back, for, the only team to ever come back from a 3-0 deficit. Then they go play the Cardinals in the World Series. The Cardinals are the best team in baseball that year. And they sweep the Cardinals. They win four games in a row. So the Red Sox literally won eight games in a row, four in a row against the Yankees, four in a row against the Cardinals, win the World Series, right? Uh, break the 86-year the drought that they were, were in. It was unbelievable, the most improbable, incredible thing that I think that's ever happened in sports ever in, in, in ever. Now, imagine, imagine that you are... Imagine it's game four, right, and you're, the Red Sox are down 3-0. They're down one run going into the bottom of the ninth. Every single person in the world thinks the Red Sox are done. They're going to lose. No sane person could think that the Red Sox are going to win, and there's one crazy guy in some bar in Boston who thinks that, right, and is, like, insistent that, no, there's a chance, right? There's still a chance that they beat the Yankees even though they always lose to the Yankees. There's a chance that they come back from being down 3-0 even though no one ever has. There's a chance that they beat the Cardinals despite the fact that the Cardinals are the best team in baseball. There's a chance that they win the World Series despite the fact that they haven't done that in 86 years. I still think that there's a chance that could happen. That's hope, right? I think, I believe, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to hold out hope that this incredibly unlikely thing could still happen happen, right? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, bears all things. So godly love is hopeful. If there's someone that you love, maybe they have sinned against you over and over. Maybe they've made the same mistakes. You've, you've exhorted them. You have uh, confronted them. You've admonished them over and over, and you're tempted to think they'll never change. I'm just going to give up on them because they are beyond hope. Paul says godly love remains hopeful. It holds out hope that the Holy Spirit can and does change and sanctify people. Godly love is hopeful. So it's genuine, it's good, it's rooted in brotherly affection, it honors others, it's zealous, it's hopeful, godly love is patient. You know, like, so if you're going to hold out hope that God can and will change people, grow them, sanctify them, it's not going to happen overnight, and so it's going to take time. And while you're waiting for God to uh, answer your while, while you're waiting for God to, to grow and change the people around you, uh, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. It'll involve suffering and, and tribulation. And so you're going to have to be patient through that suffering and through that tribulation. As you remain hopeful that God will change people, you are going to have to endure and persevere with patience because that's what godly love does. It's genuine, it's good, it's marked by brotherly affection. It honors others, it's zealous, it's hopeful, it's patient. Godly love is, con- is prayerful. It's constant in prayer. So while you're waiting, while you're hoping, we're to be constantly 
faithfully praying for, interceding on behalf of those around us who we love uh, in prayer. If you, if you want to grow in, in holiness, humility, godliness, then pray for it. Ask God for it. If you want your friends and family members to grow, pray for them. If you want your spouse to grow and change, pray for, for them. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. Luke says, Jesus told this parable to his disciples to encourage them to be constant in, in prayer. So the parable that Jesus tells to instruct this, or to, to illustrate this exact command, he says, there's a poor widow, and there's an abusive man taking advantage of her. And every day, every single day, she goes to the court house, and she comes before the judge, and she asks for relief. This, I don't know what's happening, whether it's a slumlord or a... a X, whatever, I'm, I'm being taken advantage of, I'm being, I'm being victimized, please give me relief, please advocate for me, please vindicate me, please rule against this abuser and rule for me and give me mercy and relief. And every, it says the judge is wicked, he's sinful, he doesn't love God, he doesn't love other people, he doesn't care about anyone but himself, and every day he denies her request for mercy and relief. Probably because the abuser is bribing him and lining his pockets or something. And then finally, one day, after weeks and weeks and months and months of seeing this same woman, this same widow on his docket every morning, she will not ever take a day off. Get out of my face. One day he comes in and he says, I don't care about this woman I don't care about God. I don't care about people. I don't care about justice. I don't care about any of that. I'm a wicked judge who does whatever I want, and I'm a bad person, and I'm wicked. But daggone it, just so she, so she won't wear, she's wearing me out, so I won't get beaten down with this woman every day bothering me and saying she wants mercy, I'll give her mercy just to get her out of my face. It's the parable that Jesus tells. And you can, look at, you can look this up. The word that he, that he uses for this woman is wearing me out and beating me down with coming before me every day the, the, is literally translated as uh, to, to punch someone in the face over and over until their eyes are black and blue, they're bloody and swollen shut. I kid you not. So Jesus says, pray like that. Right? Your prayers should be as passionate and as forceful and as continual and constant and unrelenting that for someone to hear them and receive them and listen to them over and over and over feels like getting punched in the face until your nose is broken and your eyes are black and blue. That's how Jesus wants his people. Pray that Fervently, pray that diligently, right? Be, grab hold of God and pray to him and ask him for what you need. And if he doesn't answer you right away, keep praying for that thing. Keep interceding for that person. Never let go until God answers your prayers. It could take weeks. It could take years. It could take your whole life. Don't lose heart. Be constant in prayer. That's what godly love looks like. Constant, persistent, never stopping praying for those that I, that I love. 
So godly love is genuine, it's good, it's rooted in brotherly affection, it shows honor, it's, it's zealous, it's hopeful, it's patient, it's prayerful. And then finally, godly love is, is generous. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So to love other people is a costly endeavor, right? It costs you time, it costs you money, it costs you emotional resources. You have to invite them into your home, invite them into your life, you have to serve them, you have to meet their, their needs, they're going to need a ride to the airport, they're gonna, their boyfriend's going to break up with them and they're going to call you in the middle of the night and you need someone to talk to, right? They're going to fall in hard times and need to borrow money for, for rent, They're going to get pregnant and need someone to watch the kids they already have while they go to the hospital to give birth to their their next kid. They're like, to to be in relationship with other people and to love them is going to be costly. It's going to inconvenience you. It's going to cost you things, but that's what godly love is. That's what it means, right? Godly love in the context of a local church means giving generously and regularly to, to contribute to the needs of the saints, Imagine that most of us give somewhere around 10% of our income to the church. I don't know that. I can't see the giving. But I imagine that most of us give somewhere around 10% of our income. Or if you don't, I would encourage you to. Because I think the Bible instructs us to give something along those, those lines. But imagine most of us give some percentage. I don't, so I don't know what you give. I also don't know what you make. But according to Google... The average American, if they work outside the home full-time for their entire adult life, making the median income over the course of their lifetime, will earn $1.7 million. So, if the average American earns the average median income of $1.7 million and gives 10% of that to to their local church, they are going to, over the course of their life, give $170,000 of their own money, just give it away to their local church to contribute to the needs of the saints, to support the proclamation of the the gospel. Do you know what you can do with $170,000? You can buy any car you want. You can buy any gadget toy. You can go on any fancy vacation you want. You can, we looked this up, you can uh, take a a cruise around the world. It's four months. All expenses paid, all inclusive, all the entertainment, anything you want to do for uh, over a hundred days. You could, you could do that 10 times in a row with the money that, that the average Christian who makes the medium might, might give to the church over the course. You could eat at Buffalo Wild Wings every night for 30 years. I did the math. So if you're a Christian earning the median income, giving 10% of your income to the local church, that's what you're giving up. You're giving up a, a, something big, meaningful, that matters. It's costly, right? You have to, 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 to love other people well. You have to, you have to give things up. Make real sacrifices. You have to live a life that is less comfortable and less luxurious than it otherwise would have been had you decided to spend all of your money on yourself. But that's what love is. That's what love does. 
Love is genuine, it's good, it's marked by affection, brotherly affection, it honors others, it's zealous, hopeful, patient, it's prayerful, and it's, and it's generous. That's how, God, that's how Paul describes godly love of your neighbor. And like I said, and then in verse 14 and following, he switches gears and now wants to talk about what it looks like not to love your neighbor or those who are close to you, but how do you love your, your enemies? And a lot of the principles, it's a Venn diagram, right? It's, they're, they're, they're overlap. So a lot of what it means to love your neighbor also involves loving your enemy and vice versa. But for loving your, your enemy, which again, you know, it, it, Paul, much of this whole letter, he's just channeling the words of Jesus, right? Matthew 5. You've heard it said to love your neighbor, that's 9 through 13, uh, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Paul is channeling Jesus here. What does godly love of your enemies look like? One, uh, it does not take vengeance, right? Verse 14, well, we'll, we'll circle back to, to love does not take vengeance because it's in verse 14, but it's also down in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Do his arm outside of all. And it's also on the next page in verses 19 through 21. So, so much of this section here is about not taking vengeance, not taking revenge when people uh, hurt you. So we'll circle back to that. So let's jump to number two. Uh, godly love uh, not only does not take vengeance, but it also, verse 15, uh, shows empathy. Right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who, who weep. Right? Godly love thinks about others, cares about others, longs for God to be merciful to others, celebrates uh, when others experience the grace of God in their lives. When they suffer, godly love thinks about them, cares about them, bears their, bears their burdens with sorrow and compassion. It doesn't come easy or naturally to rejoice with those. Right? What comes easily and naturally is rejoice when you have personal reason to rejoice and weep when you have personal reason to rejoice. What doesn't come naturally is rejoice when other people have a reason to rejoice, but you don't. Or weep when other people have a reason to weep, but you personally do, do not. So this is hard. To have empathy, to, to feel what someone else is feeling and to experience what they're experiencing with them. Again, this command is relevant for how to love your neighbor. But this verse is situated in the part of the passage that's talking about how to love your, your enemy. And so it's almost as if Paul is saying, your heart is plagued by sin and self, selfism, selfishness. Your, your heart instinctively wants what's good for it, but is indifferent to what's good for other people. When other people hurt you, it wants to get revenge on them. That's what your heart wants to do. But I'm telling you not to do that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. And the best, most effective way for you to fight against your heart's natural urge to take vengeance, the, 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 the best way that you can uh, love your neighbor instead of resenting them, or love your enemy instead of resenting them, is to start by having empathy for them, right? viewing them as real human beings, and ha- have empathy for them, right? Rejoice when good, th- look at your enemy, and when something good happens to them, rejoice with them. 
Look at your enemy, and when something bad happens to them, mourn with them. And the more you do that, the more you cultivate those empathetic attitudes and and emotions, the more your heart will actually start to feel them. And you'll desire revenge less and less, and you will find it easier to love your enemies, even if they have, have hurt you. So godly love does not take vengeance. Godly love has empathy. Uh, godly love uh, pursues peace. Right? Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And also down in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So the idea is your flesh, your sinful nature its first instinct is to get revenge. Someone hurts you, you want to hurt them back. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back. You slander me, I'm going to slander you back. You took from me, I'm going to take from you. And not only does it want to just pound for pound, eye for eye, it wants to escalate it. You hit me in the arm, I'm going to hit you in the face. You took $20 from me, I'm going to take $100 from you. Right? And so the, the end result is that it, escalates, it gets worse and worse, tensions get hotter and hotter, people get more and more embittered toward one another, fights break out, wars break out, because we're all defending our own interests instead of working for and striving for peace. And so Paul says, live in, in harmony, try to be at peace with, with others. And he does, in verse 18, it's, it's worth noting these qualifiers that he says. Right? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with, with all. Which implies that it might not always be possible. And sometimes it depends on others and not on you. So all you can do is do your part. All you can do is try your best. Right? To truly be reconciled to someone to have real and meaningful peace and harmony with them, it takes both parties. Both people have to repent. Both people have to forgive. You can't make someone else repent of their sin. All you can do is forgive their sin. You can't make someone else forgive you for your sin. All you can do is repent of your sin. And so Paul says, Repent of your sin, forgive their sin. That's what depends on you. That's what, you know, that's what is possible uh, as far as you can do. Ideally, they will too. Ideally, they'll repent, they'll forgive. And when that happens, that means it is possible and you can live peaceably. But uh, if they don't repent and if they don't forgive, then, then in that moment it's not possible. But still, you do everything that depends on you in terms of repenting of your sin, forgiving them of their sins, so that you can be at peace with those who have, have hurt you. So godly love uh, does not take vengeance. It has empathy. It pursues peace. And then four, uh, it's marked by humility. Right? We see that in verse 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely, with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. One of the least compelling, like the least attractive, most odious, most off-putting things that you could ever observe in another human being is pride and, and arrogance and hubris, right? And this sense of superiority and, and elitism. I'm better than you. I'm up here. You're down there. I have more money than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm more successful than you. I'm more 
attractive than you. I'm more educated than you, right? We hate when we see that and experience that in other people. And rightly so. It's a disgusting characteristic. And so a big part of what fosters strife and, and discord and tension and animosity is, is that pride. And so Paul says, do you want to live in harmony with others? Do you want to live peaceably with others? Do you want reconciliation between you and your enemies? Then start by being humble. Be willing to associate with people that the world says are beneath you and, and, and draw near to them and listen to them and be kind to them. Start by, uh, don't, by not being wise in your own sight. Don't overestimate how smart you are or how competent you are. Or to borrow from uh, the, the previous passage, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather view yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has, has given you. So cultivate humility in your heart, and you just may find that reconciliation with your enemies uh, is not far behind. And then, yeah, then the rest of the passage uh, is kind of, yeah, circling back to that first one, which is godly love does not take vengeance, right? Bless those who persecute, you don't curse them. Verse 14, um, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable inside of all. And the next slide in verse 19, um, we read, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome evil, or do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the idea is your first instinct in any given moment is going to be to repay evil for evil. Get revenge, get your pound of flesh. Fight fire with fire. Meet evil with evil. Paul says, that's your first instinct, but don't do it. Because getting revenge, taking vengeance, is not your job. It's God's job. God is the one who takes vengeance on sin and on behalf of his people. You might think that it's your job to right every wrong in the universe and to make sure that every sin gets punished to your satisfaction, to make sure that nobody gets away with anything. If anyone takes advantage of you or of someone that you love, it's your job to make sure that they pay dearly for it. That's not your job. If you take it upon yourself, you're effectively saying, God can't do his job. God can't be trusted to do his job. I can do God's job better than God can. The universe would be better if I were sitting on God's throne than it is currently with God sitting on his throne. I don't want God. I don't need God. I want to take God's place and do God's job. I want to be the one who says what's right and what's wrong. I want to be the one who decides how and when everyone gets punished. I want to be the one who visits my vengeance and my wrath on the people that I think deserve it. And God says, I got, I, that's my job. I can do that. Friends, you do not need to punish other people for their sins against you. 
Because God is going to take care of that. Every single sin that's ever been committed by any person or that ever will be committed by any person against you or anyone else, every single sin is going to be punished. Fully, completely, exhaustively by God and he doesn't need our help. Every single sin that's ever been committed will either be paid for by the person who committed it going to hell for eternity and experiencing eternal conscious punishment at the hand of God as he pours his wrath and judgment out on them forever and ever. Or that sin will be paid for, was already paid for, by Jesus Christ on the cross when he gave his life as a ransom, died as a sacrifice of atonement to satisfy the wrath of God and pay the penalty for sin. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, God poured out his wrath against sin on his Son, The same wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on the sinners who deserved it. So you don't need to punish other people for their sins when they hurt you because God will punish them in hell or God already did punish Jesus in their place. But either way, you don't need to worry about it. Because of the gospel of Jesus, you have now been freed up to love people. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay them, says the Lord. You can leave room for the wrath of God to punish people, and you don't need to take that responsibility on your, yourself. You don't need to spend your whole life evaluating and scrutinizing, is this person worthy of my love, or is there some sin that they've committed that I may have overlooked that I need to find and make sure that they uh, pay for first before I can love them. You don't need to do that. You don't need to carry that weight. God has taken that burden away from you, and he has therefore freed you up to love love others. You can love your neighbor. You can love your enemy. In the exact same way that Jesus Christ has loved us when we were once his enemies. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to die for us and to save us from our sins and to give us eternal life with you in heaven. And Lord, we pray that your love for us would empower us to love others, to love our neighbors and to love our enemies in the same way that that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has loved us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.